Hello, everybody, and welcome to Canines Talking Sense, your podcast for everything detection dogs. We are broadcasting to you from out here in Las Vegas in Scent City from Ford Canine Training Center. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. So, as usual, I'm always happy to give you guys updates, let you know some things that are going on. Uh, I first want to thank everybody so much for support of this podcast, you know, sharing this information with everybody has always been a goal of mine. I really enjoy uh, exposing people to different guests, different points of view, um, just, you know, letting you guys kind of be a fly on the wall. You know, so many of the guests I interview, like the one on this episode, I've admired or I have questions of or I want to you know, talk about things and relate to them and, you know, share experiences. And I hope and, you know, that you guys are enjoying all of that. Um, So again, thank you so much for being a listener, supporting the podcast, you know, reaching out to me at times with questions because of things that you've heard from the podcast or contacting our guests. Uh, It's really appreciative and I'm, I'm super supportive of all of you guys in your endeavors in learning. So I try to do my best to share that with the podcast. And now um, we also have our YouTube channel. So if you haven't found it, just go to YouTube, put in Ford Canine, and you will find our YouTube channel. I am putting up at least uh, one video every week and a half or so. There's already, I think, 60 some odd videos on there. Uh, ranging in all kinds of topics, uh, tips, things of that nature. We are starting a new series called Quick Sniffs, where we are trying to uh, condense some information so it's quick and easy to digest and allow you guys to watch and learn something or take something away or go, you guys are just completely crazy. Whatever it is, uh, that's what the YouTube channel will do. Um, And again, as you guys have already seen on the website, we have our webinars that come from many of these guests that have been on here. And there's a lot more coming up in in the next day uh, and weeks coming up. A lot more is being published on Ford Canine with webinars and classes. So go check that out out when you guys get a chance. Um, Of course... I want to cover some seminars before we get to the episode. Uh, There's been some emails and questions regarding seminars. So first one that's coming up is at the end of this month. We are in March now, so happy March. And we get to get out there and enjoy some, hopefully, some more spring-like weather for most regions of the United States uh, and elsewhere around the world that are listening to us. Um, So at the end of this month, I'm going to have my friend Michael Nesbeth out. Uh, Michael and I will be doing a seminar on puppy and young dog development. Now, this seminar isn't just focused on detection dogs. It's also focused on some protection dog work as well. So if you have a dog that is dual purpose or if you have a dog that you complete or sorry, you compete in various protection sports, this seminar is a great seminar for you. Um, Again, it covers detection you know, type preparation and skill building. And like I said, the skills needed for protection work and so forth. So that seminar is listed on FordK9.com. Go check it out. There's only a couple working dog spots left, but we have plenty of audit spots available as well. So go check that out. Now we also have a even, I would say larger 
uh, seminar slash workshop. There's actually two seminars with myself and Simon Prinz in June. So June 13th through the 15th is myself and Simon doing uh, foundation and problem solving. Then the very next three days, the 16th through the 18th, is another three-day seminar on handler skill building. So those two seminars are back-to-back. That would be, like I said, June 13th through the 15th for the first one and June 16th through the 18th for the second one. We take one day off, the 19th. And then June 20th through the 24th, myself, Simon Prinz, Dr. Nathan Hall, and Dr. Paula Tiedemann, we all four are getting together for a week-long workshop. So Dr. Nathan Hall comes from Texas Tech's Canine Olfaction Laboratory. He'll be sharing information about how dogs detect, what they detect. We'll have some of the new olfactometer boxes. Some of you guys have seen me tease those on the uh, social media. And then Dr. Paula Tiedemann, who comes from the Texas Tech Forensic Laboratory. Dr. Tiedemann has been a part of various canine detection research studies. She also sits on two boards that are designed to help set up best practices for not only training, but for evaluation and review of canine teams in all different types of detection work. So all four of us will be there. It's two days of lectures followed by three days of practicals getting out and working your dogs with all of us. So go check out FordK9.com. We have all that information. It's going to be also in two categories. Most of them are going to be listed in the seminars tab on the website, but also on the classes tab, you'll see the workshop also there. So go check those out. Don't miss out. That's going to be a huge conference. Very rarely do you get all four of us in one location where you get to have trainers that have in-depth experience, uh, experience working dogs and your academics and researchers all there in one spot to help you go from everything about odor, storage, uh, procedures with it, what it does, all kinds of stuff, all in one seminar, one place where you get to also work your dogs. Also, just again, you know, I have to thank these sponsors for our podcast. Such amazing support they provide us to give you guys even more content. And that first one is Honest Pet Company. Go check out the products they have. They have various reward type toys. They have treats. They have uh, the mixture of those two different little packets they offer or packages for the type of detection you do. Go check out Honest Pet Company. The, the link will be in the show notes. They also give back to working dog units or foundations. They have different charities that they support with the proceeds that they get from you guys when you purchase from them. So huge, great cause. I know this month it's been Georgia Police Canine Foundation that gets the benefits uh, from the sales that's currently going on. Uh, Like I said, each month it's another one. So please go support them, check them out. And then just like them is Leash and Harness uh, Coffee Company. Leash and Harness Coffee makes some great coffee. They love supporting dog handlers, thus their name. They do the same thing, too. They give back to the working dog community in various different ways. Go check out Leash and Harness Coffee. You will also get a 10% discount if you use the coupon code FORDK9. So FORD, F-O-R-D-K, number nine. In the coupon code section, you'll get 10% off your order. Now, Coming up, you know, as many of you guys know, I travel around, do the various seminars, 
uh, odor pays and canine cognition and so forth. Go check out Blue Blue Line Canine Conference in Pittsburgh. I'll be there speaking on odor pays. Blue Line Canine Training Conference is a conference that is geared towards the working dog community. So law enforcement, search and rescue and things like that. Um, They will be in Pittsburgh this year in April. Go check out bluelinecaninetraining.com. That's blue line, just normal spelling, k9training.com. Again, the link will be down in the show notes. Go check them out. If you haven't signed up to go to this event and you're near Pittsburgh or you want to go there, there are a ton of instructors over these two to three days of this conference. Uh, April 26th, 27th, 28th is the event. Go check them out at that website listed. And again, it'll be in the show notes down below. One more shout out to Iowa Canine Detection. If you're looking for some safe explosive training aids, this will be real material, but it's the material that they can safely ship to you. Go check out Iowa Canine Detection, owned by Josh Judge. The link will be in the show notes. I have a kit from him. It's a great kit. Really, really nice training materials broken up in different weights. I did a review of this on our YouTube channel. So go check him out. Uh, Go check out and support the Iowa canine detection and their products that they have because they support us. So I want to support them back. Okay. So that's about everything for the beginning of the show. Um, This guest I'm sitting down with many of you guys know him and his work and his videos that he has out there. Uh, I have followed Tobias for quite some time back when he was doing lots and lots of work with the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute. Um, He is now breaking out a little bit more on his own. So this is part one of two-part interview I have done with Tobias. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode and we will talk to you guys when we get done with this episode. And as usual, please email me any comments, suggestions. You can do so to Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at FordK9.com. And on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. On today's podcast, I get to sit down and do an interview with somebody who I've followed for a number of years, and we share a lot of the same passions when it comes to detection dogs and training of detection dogs, sharing information. We have just been continents apart. Very rarely do we ever get to cross paths. Uh, And when we've crossed paths, we've never had time to sit down and do this. So I'm going, I'm so happy to welcome Tobias Gustafson to the podcast. Tobias, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Very nice to, to uh, finally sit down and talk. We've met, we just talked about meeting in, in, uh, we have been at the same place in Washington, in Palm Springs, I think, but we Mm -hmm. just 
just missed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's those conferences we go to, uh, yeah. we always get, you know, when you're an instructor, you're always instructing. And then of course it's always the, the luck of it is the person that you want to go listen to is teaching the same time you are. So it never <laughs> it works out where I get to be a student as often as I would like to be on, at least on the classes I want to sit down and yours has always been one of them. So I've always just had to do it from afar. Like many people yeah. do with the internet these days. Yeah. So, Good thing with the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> so, so for those of you or for those of our audience that, you know, for whatever reason may have only slightly heard of you or may not even heard of you at all, give us a little bit of your background, what you do and how you got to where you're at today. Uh, okay. I started working with dogs full time. It's more than 20 years ago now. Um, I come from a family where we had dogs in the family and we have this working dog uh, organization in Sweden. So I, I kind of went into to that one quite early. It was 11 years old when I got my first dog. And then uh, I just uh, was lucky enough to, to meet some people who were uh, um, from military and um, retiring from that and started up their own dog school. And I got to work with them at a quite early age. And then um, I was doing that for several years starting uh, starting to to study biology at the same time mm. because i wanted a little bit more of the background the basics uh, of the things that i was really interested in learning and all that and at that time i was working with uh, an ethologist and he kind of uh, uh, pushed me to 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 learn more about mm -hmm. uh, things that i could could uh, uh, benefit from in, in my dog training so I combined that with the practical training, uh, studied biology. And then um, a few years later, in that context, I met my, my uh, uh, colleague from, colleagues from uh, Scandinavian Working Dog Institute. Mm -hmm. So we met through the university where we were working with uh, uh, working dogs in large carnivore management. Um, dogs working with a county administration board tracking bears and, and wolves and all that oh wow and and that's how we met and then we started up our institute um in 2010 or 11 my two colleagues and and i and then now um 11 years later i um started up my own company uh which was kind of a natural uh, direction to go since the during the pandemic we have been working more and more uh, yeah on different uh, <laughs> places and then um, yeah would be nice to 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 focus on on the things that i yeah prefer to work with and we are in a lucky position so we are able to to do that so so uh, now i uh, well i've mostly been working with police and military around the world and training uh, dogs and dog teams and uh, uh, and that's what i'm doing now also but more or less only special units, uh, special forces, and and uh, special forces within police and military. So it's both uh, training dogs, uh, two different units, but also a lot of instructing uh, mm -hmm. courses, both for for instructors and dog handlers. Um, but I want to to be able to train dogs a lot. Uh, I, I I want the hands-on thing more than. Mm -hmm. the, the, only giving courses. So I try to get both actually. I was to say, isn't it funny how, as we progressed as dog trainers, we now have to become 
expert videographers, photographers, (laughs) media editing people and, and instructors and don't get to do as much dog stuff as we would love to do. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And, and that's, um, yeah, it's good and bad. Exactly. It is a double-edged sword. Yeah. And it's always a problem when you travel a lot, Mm -hmm. you, uh, and I've been doing that a lot for many years now. So the pandemic was kind of a game changer yeah. because it forced me to stay home and do more, more training, which I, I uh, really liked to do. So I kind of built up some little bit more of the uh, good logistics for that at home. Yeah. Um, so less traveling and more, more training. I've always been training dogs a lot, but, but uh, the way I do it now, I, I really like because it's a lot of training and, yeah, it's just totally different when you get to put your hands on the dogs yeah. and you get to watch yeah. the development happen and do the, you know, yeah. adjust to what you see because we both completely agree every dog is slightly different and we're going to make adjustments yeah. and it's so fun to see that happen. Yeah, and also how quick you actually kind of lose the skills. Yes. Uh, <laughs> because it's like you're just away for a couple of weeks and then you're back and it feels sometimes like you yeah you're, you're rusty gone for a year so it's actually uh, yeah that part of the dog training the kind of mechanical skills constantly evolve mm-hmm. and uh, actually almost from day to day sometimes depending on you get a new dog and then you try something little different uh-huh. from the thing you did with another dog and that's that's definitely what drives me uh, to to continue that development because um yeah that's what i like yeah and um and then you need to train quite many dogs otherwise you just have one reference all the time exactly the more we get our hands on the different types of dogs and for me over the past year year and a half so i've i've gone you know i've did 20 something years working with lots of the pointy ear dogs, whether, you mm. know, the mouths or shepherds or duchies or what have you. And then the, I've always done, you know, the sporting breeds too, but it was always heavily towards the one side, uh, the, the, the yeah. shepherd side. And then now the past, I would say four and a half, five years, I am more heavily on the sporting breeds than the past mm. three years it's really been nothing, almost nothing but that. And that was just changing the breeds was a skill change for me going from, let's say a Mal to now what I usually work is either a working Cocker or a Springer Spaniel. Um, and just how different that is. Yeah. It's exactly the same for me. I I was kind of a, only doing Malinois and and German Shepherds. And then I I wasn't even interested in in doing Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I did, then I discovered that was really fun and now I do both and yeah I it, and I love it I, I truly love working the these new breeds and yeah. you know for me being an American you know I lived in Europe from uh, it was basically 96 ish to a little after 2000 and mm. that's where I became friends with Simon Prinz and I got to go to Nunspeed and things like that and in that time that was the only exposure I got to those spaniel breeds and the you know it was very limited but you know if you would have asked me back then hey cameron in 20 years from now you'll be you'll be working with these spaniels i would have said hell no there's no way (laughs) and now it's i really see why uh 
of many different uh, programs throughout Europe and, and the rest of the world too. Australia, New Zealand have gravitated to the Spaniels as probably, you know, I would say between that and labs, their primary breeds they work with. Yeah. And I can all see that actually it probably good thing that I did a lot of training with uh, Malinois, for example, uh, for a long time before that, before, because when I look back now and I, I see how I trained the Spaniels a couple mm-hmm. of years ago compared to how, how I do it now, it's kind of changed yeah. quite a lot, uh, especially how I start them up. And that reminds quite a lot about, about how I do some parts of the training with the Malinois. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's changed actually a lot of trying to, to get all that energy and activity <laughs> to doing doing what i want especially in if yeah, it's a exactly. small space or Not a small area the energy. Yeah. yeah so that leads me to kind of like one of my first questions is we'll start off at the beginning so how important is obviously the foundation and talk a little bit about what you do for your beginning steps the important things that you look at doing and that's critical for you when you're starting a dog in detection well, I I prefer starting up start up with with puppies because then I I can be kind of in control yep. of everything uh, because I think that the most important and also at the same time most difficult thing is is, is to to um, get the foundations right mm-hmm. and I'm not really um, that much into talk about selection because I think that selecting dogs is always I mean, you can select the perfect dog objectively, but mm-hmm. if you don't know how to train that one, it's you know it still doesn't matter if it's the perfect dog. Yeah. So those two goes in through uh, in, in uh, to each other because I I think that the foundation the the first parts of the foundation uh, are actually uh, when I do the selection because the selection for me is to see if the dog um develops in the right yeah. way and that's uh, in my opinion not possible to see during a very simple test you need to put them Correct. into some kind of systematic training to so see true that they can. yeah and, and and that's um so so they, they they go into each other the selection process and, and the development the first thing that i do is to uh, uh at an early age uh i've had a few litters also so i've done that with mm-hmm with uh, very young puppies uh, is to, uh, first of all, build up the, the, the reinforces that I, I mm-hmm. want to use later on. But I also want to, at a, as soon as possible, try to direct all that drive or energy or whatever we like to call it into some kind of focus. Because the worst dogs that I get are the ones that they have been exposed to this kind of drive building thing for mm-hmm. one and a half year and no doubt they have a lot of drive but it's not productive correct because they haven't learned to to focus that so a lot of drive without uh teaching the dog the connection between first focus and then kind of um, um work is useless so mm-hmm. So what I do is that I prepare the first part of the of the uh, 
play development is actually done with food. Mm -hmm. So not searching for food, but I want to practice the yeah, actually the movements that I will use later on in the in the play. Mm -hmm. So they prepare themselves for moving their body, actually. Yeah. Because that's another thing we see many dogs with really poor body control, which takes a lot of energy from the actual training later on. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do that on a low uh, stress level with food, just doing different types of food games. And, and what I do in that uh, um, part of the training is also to, to teach them to focus on the things that are presented in front of them. So in this case, I have my hand with a piece of food. Yep. And I, I teach them to focus leads to movement, movement, mm -hmm. just chasing after the hand. And I try to keep straight lines in the beginning just to, to um, uh, make them really follow uh, the hand in, with focus instead of just being excited. Yes. Uh, so the straight lines and when I can see that they follow my hand without uh, uh, losing focus or contact with it, uh, then I, um, I start to do longer chasing uh, and uh, faster movements. And I start to add some spinning and uh, things like that. So what that play is doing is that they teach them the movements that they will later on do with the toy. Mm -hmm. uh, and also I teach them body control or they teach themselves body yeah. control. And it starts up the type of play that I normally use for, for detection and tracking, that's the uh, more of a hunting type of play than social play. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and also with presenting things in front of them, which means that if you're looking at this for one or two seconds and control yourself, this thing will move and you are allowed to chase after it. Yeah. So I teach them the reward acceleration through that part of the, of the play also. Okay. And at that time I can also, uh, condition the reward signal if I if I like um, yes and in the next step I do the same uh, type of movement but now I start to use the flirt pole uh, because what I see often uh, are dogs who are are uh, exposed to play uh, on a too close distance to the handler too mm -hmm. early so even um, I mean, even dogs with a lot of interest in, in the toy or, uh, you know, they're crazy about playing can be a little bit overwhelmed by someone just giving them a tug and, and then start to, to play with them. So I always establish all of the reward development with different types of chasing games. Um, and that's why I use the flirt ball because then I get the distance and I can steal and pull the toy without uh, the dog thinking that I that I'm actually taking it. Yeah. So if I present the toy with both hands, and I give it to the dog, and then I steal it because I want a stronger grip, that will immediately turn into a social conflict. Yes. Or the dog will lose confidence or, or things. So with the flirt pole, I can use as small movements as possible, so the dog after a while doesn't really notice me and just focus on the toy. And at that point I use a, a leather tug normally uh, because I want to make it, you know, uh, um, easy for them to, uh, uh, comfortable for them to bite in. Yeah. And then uh, I introduce the straight lines, straight lines away from the dog, um, standing still. And uh, when the dog accelerates the most, that's the criteria for each time is that they accelerate 
more and more. Mm -hmm. And I lift it up a little bit from the ground so they can catch it. So I get that last effort to, to take it. Uh, and then when they are biting, immediately I start to pull it. And this is something uh, I do to build up the interest for the toy. Mm -hmm. uh, because what we see in the natural thing for a Labrador especially to do when you start to pull it is that they let go yeah. of it. And what I want to use in the next part, when I start with the search development, then I want them to search for the whole toy. And many dogs, they find it, they bite, and then they let go of it. Yes. So the pulling with the flirt pole is to make them want to keep it. So I do the same thing with the Malinois and Spaniels and Labrador, just do it a little bit different when it comes to age. Mm -hmm. And that depends sometimes on breeding lines and what I know about them and, and all that. But I basically do the same thing within just the different ages. And then I um, do the flirt pole until I come to the point where I can't really pull it out of the dog's mouth. Um, and through that play, I have done a lot of just chasing games and longer, chase it, uh, longer uh, chasing after the toy, um, make it very little social, just mm -hmm. make the toy become focused. And I also present the toy in the same way as I do with the food hand okay. in front of yep. them, which means that if they look away, if, even if it's just for a second, I uh, say, oops, yep, and then I gone. lift it up. And then I put it down again because I don't mm -hmm. want to build in, um, um, uh, you know, losing focus. Yes, yeah, they're looking away so because it's rewarding. Perfect yeah. chain uh, because that is something that I want them to teach already from start. Otherwise, it's difficult for me to ask them to do that later on. Yeah. So okay. I think it's more fair to do that. So out of focus comes uh, movement, and um, which in the training situation later on um, results in a dog who's just been seeing this toy running from one side to another they will get really excited sure. frustrated and start to do a lot of things but when i do this type of play when they enter a training situation they kind of looking they are looking for focus mm -hmm. uh, that helps me a lot in the next step when i start to do the indication and the search and everything yeah, because you're so, definitely, I say, you're definitely building the impulse control aspect, yeah. which, like you just said, so many dogs um, without this are just yeah. offering, you know, lots of behaviors all over the place. It's not really. Yeah, and then they are exhausted when yes. they're training, even their training haven't started. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so that's something that I can practice with the food rewards from start. Um, so when I've done the flirt pole thing and i can now pull the toy actually as hard as i can actually and i feel that now he, he won't let go of it mm -hmm. um and during that time i would say i don't ask the dog to out at any mm -hmm. point uh, i haven't trained the out yet and that's another problem very often that that if you train the out too, too early soon, you, yeah. you lose a little bit of that uh, uh dry and hard grip that i i really want especially if you do that with the puppies or young dogs so I pull it and then I I take the opportunity to, to steal it when yeah. they are for example, lying down with it and then I steal it. That wouldn't be possible if I didn't have the flirt pole because Correct. then the dog would start to mistrust me and think that I'm stealing. Yeah, you're taking it from them, not 
It, yeah, does, it exactly. not like it, it magically took a point. It went away. Yeah. 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 And, um, the timing and the movements are important because you, I want to capture the best attempt to catch it. Mm -hmm. So if I do too many misses, they will lose yes. drive and confidence. So, so it's a little bit of a balance and this is why you have to be careful when you train, especially young dogs and puppies and all that to, to apply the technique, but don't let them miss it too many times. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have the criteria for intensity and acceleration and hard grip and all that. So then in the next step, when I've done the flirt pole, I go over to the next type of toy, which is the actual reinforcer that I will use in training. Okay. And that could be a ball on a rope or a Kong on a rope, mm -hmm. for example. So that is actually just the flirt pole getting shorter. Sure. So because I still keep it with one hand. And at this point, the dog is already used to focus on the thing that is in front of him. So if I had done the typical contact exercises that many people do with their puppies, and I present the toy in front of them, mm -hmm. many dogs would look, look up on, on you. Yes. And, uh, and here I want the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to focus because that will help me to, to get away from handler influence, yep. some aspects of that in, in the search and also with the, it, it's actually the first step of the indication. But I use a, a toy that I can hold with one hand and a rope because then I can still do a little yep. bit more of a hunting uh, game. At that point, the dog have done that already. So he knows what to expect. Mm -hmm. Probably for some dogs, I need to do a little bit more of a targeting so they don't bite in the rope, for example, sure. because now they are used to- yeah, especially the young dogs. Yeah, so, so then I, I do that, but otherwise it's the same. And at this point, I'm using the same type of principles. I pull it away from them. I, but now it's since it's shorter, it's not possible to do straight lines only. So now I do it kind of a chasing game around me, mm -hmm. but aim for the same thing. Acceleration, hard grip. As soon as they grab it, I pull it. And, uh, and then I have built up the, um, um, the two parts or the, I've come to the point where, where the reinforcer should work for detection and, and, um, and uh, tracking, but I continue the play development in the next step with a toy that I can hold with both hands. Okay. And then I come okay. into the social type of play, which I use for other types of training. But if we just focus on the detection dog, uh, uh, now that's the point where I'm, I, I come to. And that's actually one thing that I know differs a little bit. I'm not at all uh, focusing on retrieving yep. the toy. Yep. Uh, I don't care about that. Actually, I would even select dogs who run in the opposite direction with the toy when they grab it. Sure. Because for me, it's more important that they want the toy. Correct. The possession is something that I can teach them. Yeah. So uh, uh, now let I me ask uh, something real quick. Now, do you yeah, yeah. do you let uh, do you go about, let's say, finding the reinforcer that the dog likes the most so do you do anything that you do to evaluate okay this dog really mm -hmm. likes um the ball versus you know ball and kong are gonna be pretty close but you know some dogs yeah. do prefer the ball over the kong um do you do anything like that that looks at maybe tug or something soft or you know yeah I, uh, it depends a lot on what I'm going to use the dog for because if I know that it will be important that they can reward in a certain way by just mm -hmm. you know throwing the 
ball or a car, sure. depending on the handle, for example. If I, because the, for me, then then I would uh, I would actually instead just look for dogs who have a lot of that yeah. instead, because I know that that will be easier for that handler later on. But the other thing is that uh, if I um, if I uh, going to because I'm I'm pretty. Uh, um, I, when I, when I will explain when we come to the search development sure, sure. phase, uh, it's, um, I differ from, it's important for me that when the dog finds the toy, uh -huh. when, I, when, I, when I do that in the first part of the search development phase, I want them to be really happy to find the toy. And if that toy is associated with tugging, yeah. and it can be a problem. Correct. Because for some dogs, they don't, the toys doesn't work isn't worth anything unless someone is holding it so that makes the training more complicated sure so if i know that uh, i need a dog who is more or less a searching machine and i will hand it over to a handler who doesn't have the the the, the skills skill yeah then it's better to just try to to select okay i i want the dog to be re reinforced with this mm -hmm. and then i just see how how it goes and yeah then, no, it's, uh, it's a great it point part of the yeah. Yeah. Because if it's too much, like you said, where the play is interactive with the handler, when there's too yeah. much of that, um, yeah. the byproduct is a dog that looks to handler um, yeah. at some point, maybe more frequently than obviously, like you said, when the toy itself is really gratifying and you yeah. just happen to be the person that engages with them from time to time. But right. the toy is really, you know, at the end of the day, when that reinforcement happens, that's what does it for them. Yeah. And, and if, I mean, they are already looking at us in so many different situations. Sure. So we don't need to, to do that even more. Mm -hmm. in play. And Absolutely. it makes it easier for me to separate the reward system when I do, um, you know, bite work or obedience. But when I do, detection and tracking i'm uh, really uh, much into to having uh, them rewarded by just I, know, I talk very little to them during that time i just want them to be able to just receive the the ball and be happy for that yeah uh, because i don't want to create more uh, expectations on me correct no i That's totally the reason agree why i focus so much on the chasing games to build up the prey drive or whatever we like to call it, but uh, the flirt pole thing and the toy with one hand, all of that is just because I want to put the toy in focus and almost make the dog forget about me. And then I can use that toy uh, to already from start in the training session or, or operations, uh, put the dog in, the, in that kind of hunting mode much easier. Yes. Um, so, and also, yeah, we will come to that now actually, because when I've done that, play with the Kong or ball or whatever. Uh, the important thing is that at that in that uh, last step, I'm using a toy with a rope uh, or Kong with a rope. But in later on in this training, then I, I start to, um, to uh, use without rope also. Um, but uh, in that part where I introduce toy, because I, I want to feel how the grip is. Mm -hmm. Uh, because that would be my reference in the next part. So all the play development teaches me to see how the dog bites when he's confident. Yes. So then, then I learn how to see, uh, then I learn to see how he looks when he's really confident or when he's not confident and all that. Because that information is extremely important for me in the next 
part of the training where I start the search development. So when I start the search development, I use that last reinforcer that I uh, the the mm-hmm. toy with a rope, and then I I just start to let him search for that one in uh, 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 different uh, contexts and situations and yeah. environments. But I try to keep the visual uh, at a minimum. So first, I, I need to throw it. You know, first, just to let the dog see that I'm throwing it up in something where it disappears. Um, but depending on if it's a puppy, a young puppy, they can be really, really bad at understanding that. So mm-hmm. when you're throwing something away and it disappears out of the sight, it doesn't exist anymore. Yes. So it takes a while for them to develop that. And in dogs, it takes quite a long time, some, uh, actually. So what I do that with them, them is that I go back to the flirt pole and then I hold the dog, place it the toy in front of them, pull it on a straight line out in high grass, for example. Gotcha. And then they follow it because they have done that through play development, but still they are not able to see it. And then you get that, that transition from using eyes to using nose in a way that doesn't cost that much, mm-hmm. uh, you know, throwing. So that that keeps the stress level a little lower. So I do that. But for, for older dogs, I just throw it out and just make them understand that they should search for it. And when they are searching for it, my goal is that they should search for that toy that I built up the value of it mm-hmm. during the play development, which gives them a reason for for them to search for it. And it gives them a reason for them to search for a long time and to tackle different type of challenges, mm-hmm. uh, you know, environmentally and all that. And when they find it, and this is the reason why I always keep, keep telling people to don't train the indication too early. Correct. Because you want to see how they grab it. Mm-hmm. And since I have done, looked at the, I can go back to and have my references during the play, then I can easily see that, okay, now he's grabbing it just like he did in the, in the play development. That means that he's confident in this situation. Uh, and if he starts to bite with front teeth or, you know, uh, all that, that gives me information that, okay, he, he, he thinks that this environment or this context is a little bit uh, stressful. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I need to do the play development before the, just to learn how to, first of all, give the dog a reason to find, uh, to search for it, but also to give me uh, information about how he, he um, uh, feels about the situation. Mm-hmm. And that play development or search development is something that I do. And this is one of the reasons why I prefer to start with puppies, because then I can, you know, I don't need to rush through this. Correct. I can continue That's and do it thing. for, yeah. And I try to do it every day in different uh, situations and, and scenarios and, and everything. And just to see that they are still grabbing it. And this is the Import, most important part of the selection process mm-hmm. because this is where I will see if the dog has what it takes. So if he can search for it for five, 10 minutes and still just kind of get more intense and yeah. almost, you know, get, get more, uh, that's where you see the grit. And then when I've gone through all the different types of, of uh, environments that I think that I need to see for this dog, depending on what he's going to work with, the next step is to start up the indication training, or if the dog still needs to do some more play development, but the search development is still good, and I still want to go to smaller amount of sense just to make it a little bit more challenging for the dog, then I only reward the 
almost reaction, the pullback with the head. But mm-hmm. I wait if I, if I, for example, want to sit and stare, I wait normally with the sit. Mm-hmm. Because if the dog has too little drive on the cone, the sit will get too relaxed and the dog will yeah. get a little bit too, uh, on too big distance. So then I, uh, this is typically something for, you know, dogs for six, seven, eight months that they need, especially bigger dogs, they need a little bit more play development. Actually, especially the Malinois, people think they are crazy about the toy, but normally I have to do this longer with them. Mm-hmm. And then I want to, the goal is that I want them to, when they find, I want them to have locked front legs in the position where they were when they found it. Uh, if they move their front legs and backing out from the height too much, for me, that's a signal that I need to do more uh, play development. Okay. Uh, because we are using uh, the toy normally in the first steps of the indication training. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, where I, I uh, 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 introduce it. Uh, uh, that means that if they are backing out too much from the toy, the yeah. whole toy that is actually hidden there, or if if it's smaller pieces, I want more uh, uh, and a more intense uh, mm-hmm. focus on the heart. And what ages are you doing for the puppies uh, for this play development and then search development? What ages are you in in approximately well, each category? When I have had litters, I start up, you know, already it's six weeks, five, mm-hmm. six weeks with them. And then I do separate sessions where I do play development with the flirt pole with all of them together. Gotcha. To use the competition. And then I take them one by one. Uh, so I do that. And when I get home, when I get a puppy at home from, you know, eight weeks, then I start immediately. Uh, and then I uh, take a break during when they are uh, changing teeth. And during that time, I normally do more of the food games. Okay. And then I start up the play development again. again. Gotcha. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, and, and I actually do exactly the same thing with older dogs. Um, just um, because I want to see, like I said, the reference. I want to see how they bite and how they grab. And I want to feel it kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I go through the process also with older dogs, even though I'd make it quicker sometimes if yeah. I don't need it. Um, but um, and many times, even with the you know the the dogs who are described as yeah they're crazy about the toys, <laughs> and then they and then I play with them with a cone on a rope or ball on a rope, even if it's a uh, you know an adult dog, and uh, and they get active and looks crazy but i can feel that nah it's not uh, yep it's not actually that hard uh-huh. right so then i normally even go back with a with a, a flirt pole again because that uh, thin grip or hectic bite very often comes from introducing that kind of social competition too early and that can very easily affect the the grip on the toy and I don't want that conflict in something that I will reward with. Yes. So then I, I, I need to go back very often to do the flirt pole or, or similar training just to make them be more in a distance from me so they get more confident and, and really takes some time to, to build up a confident grip. And, um, and then I can go back to the toy uh, again and then it's normally fine. Yeah. 
No, and then and so, you would say your search development is going to be like you said, kind of a little bit after the teething. They've changed your teeth yeah. a little bit. So you're we're talking if like I, six, I, seven months old ish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I don't see the. I mean, I can do that now and then also with younger puppies also. Yeah, same, sure. But but I uh, it becomes it more focused. How, yeah, when they get older. Yeah, but it, it all depends on how interested they are in yeah. in the toy. Some. Yeah. Uh, are you know the, uh, with the spaniels and them normally it goes quicker. Yes, uh, but with, with and some it changes older, some a little bit too. I've as I've noticed yeah. as I've been raising them, yeah. right around yeah. that six seven month old stage, they seem to kind of like they're playful. They're not yeah. as focused, and then all of a sudden we get past you know let's say eight nine months old. The focus starts yeah. to come back, at least on some of the ones I've been doing. Then, it, then it's back to what I saw when they were little puppies again. It's like, oh yeah, we're in, we're in it. But there's like that. I don't know if it's the hormone change that happens. Um, yeah, exactly. Things like and that told, that kind of interfere a little bit. Yeah, and I think also that, I mean, it's it's not a problem. It's not difficult to teach no a young puppy a lot of different skills. Nope. I mean, hard surface tracking with a. 10 12 weeks old puppies mm -hmm. easy oh yeah it, it, it's not the problem the problem is to keep that motivation mm -hmm. for a whole career yes <laughs> especially to keep it over one year old i see a lot of uh, puppies doing things uh, you know on facebook and everything doing uh, things and uh, but i recognize the behavior very often that okay they are doing hard surface tracking but does it think it's fun Correct. Okay. Or is it a and then I know that if I would looking at that dog, you know, a year later, and I've done that, seen it uh, many times, um, they are washed out. Yep. Already. So the problem, and what I'm saying is not that you shouldn't train puppies, but you need to do the right thing. I really want to train puppies, but it's much more important to use that time for building up the things that you will use later on in training instead of just training a lot of skills because it's difficult to to maintain that motivation for something that is you know uh, takes some uh, you know um, it, it, it's it's not possible it's not necessarily fun for them to do hard surface tracking but they can do it yeah and some of those skills or disciplines you have to select the right dog for so you have to select the dog that are willing to do this um, even when it's tough. And um, so that is the big problem to keep that balance mm -hmm. and stop when it's enough. And normally th those two are <laughs> in a typical crash. And I say this because I've done that mistakes. I've kind of killed the dog's motivations many times by doing this too early because yeah. I want, want to rush into the, to the, skill you know uh, technical training so you you when when and hard surface tracking is a good thing uh, describe uh, to use as an example they're doing this and at the point the time when you think that ah damn now he really now it's starting to get fun because it's he, he knows what he's doing and that is very often exactly when they enter that period of of life when they start to be focused on other things in the surrounding and everything and that's where people push it too far and then they can almost kill the dog's motivation and mm -hmm. actually sometimes not even be able to get it back. Yeah. So I spend time on doing the foundations, which is the reward development and the, the search development, because 
the search development in this case is just searching for what they want. Yeah. And when they find it, they're actually searching for their reinforcer. Yes. So, and you can do that. I mean, yeah. Oh, many, yeah. Many I, I've done it. Now, what do you, so there are two questions off of that, of that part specifically. What do you, what's the pros and cons? Cause I, I do both and mm. I also use food at times in certain development. I don't do it too much because of the things that I'm mm. sure you're going to bring up. Um, so what's the problem? What's the pro and the con for using food for search development? And then the third part with toy being the thing they're searching mm. for, how do you answer the question when people say, well, now I'm afraid my dog's going to be looking for its toy all the time? Uh, well, it's not, it's nothing new. I mean, that's how basically detection dogs have been trained for, mm -hmm. I don't know how many years. And that's never been a problem. Um, uh, because if that is a problem, well, then the toy is not the problem actually, but your imprinting process and you know, all the other things. You Correct. Do, obviously. <laughs> uh, so, uh, because it's just facts that you need the reason why we can make our dogs do all these amazing things is that we can reward them with something. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's the, that's just facts. So, and, and like I always say, uh, you, you always got a proof too. So later yeah, on. Yeah, sure. And, uh, but I mean, what is the problem if the dog, dog would find his, and now we're back to, or we're a little bit into the contextual learning because yep. if I use the same toy every time for this specifically, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the dog has been searching for that toy. And then later on, I start to search for, for, uh, um, real stop substances. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, placed other toys and I haven't even seen my dogs react to them. Mm -hmm. But if it was the toy that they were rewarded with, well, of course they would react to that. Sure. But that's not the situation that would happen because I have the, that yeah, toy. Yeah, we have that particular toy. Now, with, it with... would be a problem if I constantly changed my reward. True. Or... And that is a, a thing that I don't do just by the reason that I mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. That well, and I was going to say, I'll give you the example of a, of a police canine here in the United States the fear, where the fear comes from. Let's just say, like you said, they use Kong or tennis ball, whatever yeah. it is. Tennis ball is common. Yeah. Both, both are. And you're searching someone's car and they have dogs themselves. So there's a Kong in the car or the tennis ball in the car. And what happens is uh, their dog gives an indication to the vehicle. They search the vehicle, but all they happen to come across was that one Kong toy or that one ball. And now, now they think to themselves, whether this was actually true or not, won't matter. They will think because they didn't find a substance that we're looking for one of the narcotics they only found or all they saw in the car was a ball or a Kong, or they're very concerned with going to court and yeah. saying their dog was this. So how do you address that to the audience that has that kind of question? Yeah. And I would say there are several things to say about that, but one of them is that um, I used to say that, well, first of all, I would <laughs> take the opportunity to say that Kong is um also, something that has been used for mind detection dogs and other detection dogs mm -hmm. for quite many years now. And um, it's just uh, a way to, to teach the dog the different parts of the foundations, the indication, the search techniques and everything before you do 
before you imprint them just because it's better to make the mistakes and all the things uh, on something else yes. than the real. I totally the, agree. That's one reason. But the other reason is that you have to balance the fact that if you have to have real material mm-hmm. every time you train, that would make people train too little. Yeah. Uh, I train every day, several times a day. Mm-hmm. And also, I want to take the opportunity to train when I have the dog in the car, I'm driving, and then I all of a sudden I see, oh, shit, this is a good yeah. place to uh-huh. train. If I would have to have uh, drugs or explosives in my car, would be too little training. So yeah. the thing about contextual learning is that they are it's always present yes. through training. Every time the dog finds something or search some, somewhere, there's a two-process theory. I go from my car into a building and train. And then the dog finds something in that building, and then I teach the dog that he is, expects to find something in that building. Okay, that's good. But at the same time, I teach him that there will be nothing from the car into that building. Mm-hmm. So the, that's happen, that happens all the time. Yep. And uh, after a while, the expectation of, we all know that the expectation of finding something on a specific place is really easy to teach them. Yes. But what people don't really think about enough is that it's equally easy to train a dog to expect to find nothing on a specific Yeah, oh, for sure. And that's the whole thing with detection training, is to teach the dog through variation mm-hmm. that the hides can be placed everywhere. Absolutely. And there are no places where they can't be found. That's our big challenge. And the only way to do that is by training everywhere. Uh-huh. And to be able to train everywhere, you need to have the material with you. And I know that many police officers are not really co- uh, comfortable with hiding at their the local own. Yeah. But you still need to give that dog uh, that experience. Mm-hmm. So that's the balance. If you know that, yes, I have access to real material mm-hmm. with variation, uh, and I have that every day, then it's not a problem. But many, most people don't have that. Yeah. And that means that they would train too little. Mm-hmm. And then you have to weigh those, those two factors against each other. Yeah. And then most come to a point where they realize, ah, well, I, I need to train on something else because I will train too little otherwise. Yeah. And then Kong happens to be a good material. Mm-hmm. It's nothing special about Kong. You could use anything. Yeah. But the, some things are good with using a toy. And first of all, it is... No, makes no sense searching for pieces of Kong if the dog isn't crazy about the Kong, first of all. Sure. So the whole idea is to transfer that intensity that you can get from the toy mm-hmm. over to smaller amount of sense and then to real uh, mm-hmm. material. So you could treat the pieces of Kong just like another target odor. Yeah. Um, where you do the kind of uh, daily training on. And as often as possible, you train on something on the real material. Um, but the good thing with Kong is that it's red. Mm-hmm. Dogs don't see red that mm-hmm. easy. So we can use quite small pieces uh, uh, without you know, them seeing it. So they mm-hmm. have to use their nose to find it. And when they find it, they think about their Kong. So yeah. then you get the strong that intrinsic yeah, response. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then you can also, another good thing is that you can cut it into small pieces. If you do that with a tennis ball, you can of course do that also, but it's not that solid material. Yeah. So the pieces of Kong, you can cut into very, very, very small pieces. And, uh, and then you can uh, experiment with a, with a amount of sense in a very good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy them everywhere. And uh, it's all the same wherever you buy them. Uh, you can boil them. Yeah. Which we do also when we when we train in the beginning, we we boil them and then we use uh, uh, the touch uh, the human odor later on, just like it, as a distraction. So we don't use that in the beginning. Yeah, that's one thing. But I mean, you could do this with something else. Of course, I was just gonna say. Yeah, uh, yeah. So th- it's been and the funny thing is that I often get the question. I got it several times today already. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, about the Kong. And I just wanted to say that most of the units that we are training, uh, they are not using Kong, but they are using something else. That, and, and that is working in the same way, but it's not Kong, it's something else. It, it can be a scent that is specifically made for that unit, for example, but it's still something else than the real target odor mm-hmm. because it shortens the training time and it, it gives you the opportunity to avoid that contextual learning. Um, uh, or the problems with the context you learn because it gives you training opportunities. And then if you, uh, so so uh, the, the things that I do with my private dogs are normally Kong. Okay. But we have many dogs that we train, we start up with the target order immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with some other dogs, they are using another material or another sense. So that's sure. definitely not the, the case in every, every, I would say it's, more often that they are training on something else. Yeah, like me and you were talking about, you know, there's yeah. the, uh, it came out of some years ago, UDCs is called Universal Detection Calibrant. Uh, it was yeah. developed at FIU by a student that worked with Ken Furton. Uh, yeah. Now things have progressed uh, where they're, you know, I nickname it the NOTA Novel Odor Training Aid. And it's the only place it exists is in a laboratory. And just like you said, you can go to very small amounts of it, uh, medium amounts of it to a larger amount of it. And that way you're, you know, in this case, for those that have concerns, you're only training the dog on something that only exists in a laboratory. It doesn't exist anywhere else in nature. So a dog who's younger, like we're talking about, and developing that dog, its skills in searching, and then later on telling you, reporting or indicating that it's found it, you can do all that safely and not be associated to a target odor yet. And yeah. if you're people like me and you, and we're raising dogs, uh, we don't have to be married to a target odor until we, no. the dog is either sold or no, we know where it's going no, exactly. to yet. Yeah. 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 And it's just complicated to, to uh, handle and, and all that. Yeah. And I think it's, this is based on the fact that people think that the imprinting phase is so difficult yes and important it's not difficult at all no it it, it yeah. happens it a lot of times no them knowing it. <laughs> what takes time is to give the dog experience of finding this or these target odors in different environments what the dog is searching for actually doesn't matter mm-hmm. uh, when we are doing the foundations uh, so it's never been a problem uh, so um, other than legal I mean, yeah, but yeah, the yeah. funny thing is, is like I, I, I always wonder when I get the question, but how can you train on Kong? Well, and at the same time, that person who asks me is training on pseudoscent. Yeah. Which is Very common exactly in the, the same States. thing. Yeah. 
it's yeah it's training on something else yep. the real material and they have to take the word of the person who made it and sells it yeah. as oh believe me this matches what you're what you're training your dog to go find later on when in many cases how do we not know it's just another odor you know yeah, exactly. and, and there's enough yeah. debate about that and enough science is still being developed and where things seem to lead is yeah it's not necessarily the same odor that uh, let's say the pseudo smells like cocaine that's over here. No, there's so many other factors that are involved. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the same, almost the same game we're talking about. You're teaching a dog this, this odor, which is, let's say the pseudo odor, the mimic odor, and then you're transitioning over to here. Um, not the same reason. Exactly. Because it's the generalization. Yep. Yep. And, and also, um, it's, I mean, if, Again, the imprinting is not difficult. What is difficult is to make the dog reliable in all different contexts, in all different situations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the context is huge. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the problem. So you can treat that Kong or whatever you're using in two different ways. Mm-hmm. First of all, you can either just treat it like it is another target order. Mm-hmm. And then you never stop training on it. Yep. Yep. You continue to do it. And that's the normal thing. Yeah. The other thing would be to... Uh, to use it first and then later on add it as a distracting scent. Correct. And, you know, that I don't really see the, yeah. the, because if that was the idea, I wouldn't start on it. Sure. Yeah. Then I would, and that's, if that's a problem for a unit that we train, then normally we say, well, then we start with something else. Real material. Yeah. But then we need to make sure that we can train or the real material, but mm-hmm. then we need to make sure that we can do that enough. Yes. Times. So, so that's another and, and the third thing, and that's been a situation sometimes for dogs working at airports. Mm-hmm. And then, but then you can use the contextual learning. Yeah. So if it is a consequence, would be if you find, let's say, you're searching bags, and someone have Kong in the bag. Yeah. And then you get an indication, and the consequence of having an indication is that you have to shut down the, the airport. Yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. For yes. Sure. Yeah. But then I recommend that. You don't train on Kong mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. You train on real material. Yeah. But the thing is that since they are working almost the same place every time, then you can use the contextual learning. Yes. Because then it's not a problem if the dog has a lot of expectation on that specific place. We want that. I mean, because I have that same thing with casinos here. Same thing. Because that's where he will work. Mm-hmm. So then it's just good. But I know if you if you know that you will search on. Like, like I said, sometimes you can use that contextual learning. You you can use it on an airport or in a specific place or with laboratory dogs. We do it all the time. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it, it's then you would do search development in different uh, environments just to keep the motivation, make it more fun for the dog or something. But it doesn't matter if they are only good at finding something in, on that scent wheel, for example. Sure. But if you have a drug detection dog, for example, and you want him to be, you know, never know where he will be. Correct. Working, well, then you have to train everywhere uh-huh and if your department can guarantee that you will have enough drugs different drugs mm-hmm. to train on on a daily basis and also take the opportunities when they uh, come then start training on that then but yeah. when i ask people that normally they say no that will be a problem okay then you have to put those two against each other and decide what to do yeah no and That's so as you you know uh, talk about the search development phase. So you're getting the dog 
searching for whatever it is we're doing and starting off, like typically I would say one of the things I see frequently in your videos, obviously is your, is your brick wall. Then you go mm -hmm. from that to sometimes the little grass on the ground uh, that you have and that, or the rocks or what have you. So your goal as you're developing the search is like you said, you start presenting different areas as they get proficient in this area. Then we go to this area, then this. And then, like you said, then it becomes your imagination or what you have available yeah. uh, to keep getting that dog going. Because back to that context part is if we stay in the one thing, let's say the brick wall for too long or the, the set wheels or the pipes or whatever it is that people use in those beginning stages, mm -hmm. if you stay there for too long, the dog thinks, well, the only place I find Something is yeah. in these contexts. Not only that, the context of what the odor is, how it's packaged. So if you're a bomb dog handler, drug dog handler, what have you, and your stuff is always packaged in the same way, that's yeah. part of the scent context or the odor context that the dog has picked up on. So you've got to change, like you said, you got to have, get your hands on a lot of different ways that this odor is, you know, presented to the dog or contained or concealed so that way the dog gets the understanding because if they get it the same way frequently, that's mm. the context they expect. And if it's not there, they might not generalize good enough for the handler to read that, Hey, there was something here. Does that sound correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I also think there are ways to, because some of these, especially the brick wall is something that I used to compare it with the gym almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you need to use it to get that uh, physically trained actually for for using uh, the nose in that intense way for a long time so what i'm very careful with when i do that is that i always use a start signal to start up a detailed search which is which is what, what we want there so then i use a tapping ah. and the tapping means that the dog should start exactly where i tap uh, and th then just move on from that. Uh, so it's not showing the direction or anything. I just tap one time. Just that means start using the nose. Okay. But if I would standing, if I would stand two meter away from the brick wall and just send the dog, mm -hmm. say search, and the dog goes to the wall and starts to search, then it would be a problem because then the dog has created a stimulus picture, which the dog learned, and he doesn't care about my, you know search command he, he, the, the wall is what starts up the search uh -huh. so then i will have a problem to move on from that step because the dog have learned to react on that signal which is the 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 wall but if i am consistent with my start signal uh -huh. then i can easily just move one meter away from the wall and tap yep. on something else yep so and that's then it's not a problem to say, train in the same uh, context or use the same material if you have control over your start signal, because then I can start to generalize that and and use my start signal on myself and you know everything, and then I can kind of uh, uh, avoid that problem. Mm -hmm. But what I think later on for many is a problem when they train, especially on scent wheels or lineups or, or brick walls. Also, except from that start signal, is that. Um, they they search on let's say on the sand wheel do the imprinting mm -hmm. and they they then they train too much there correct so then they move out to another area and the dog doesn't find it mm -hmm. there so then they go back to the sand wheel yes <laughs> yeah that is. and then you know you train you so you come to a point where you have to just move on yeah. so normally when we do imprinting on the sand wheel 
add distractions and all that, and then quickly move out in a completely different context. Yeah, no, and you bring up a great point because, you know, a lot of people know me for the scent wheels or for the lineups because I'm talking about a lot of times um, the dog understanding target versus non-target, and it's just a yes or no equation. Is it here? Not here. Yes, yes or no as it go down. But at the same time, there's a ton of other searching as training progresses in a lot of other areas. Yeah, and and I would say that I, I do that too. So uh, I train a lot on it, but yeah. that's also why I know that there. <laughs> well, I was just going to say because you're bringing up the important part is the downside to the internet and videos and things like that yeah. is people will make an assumption based on what they see there yeah. is that's what you do all the time, and yeah, exactly. some of the problems they have come from doing that one thing yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, and like I always preach, I know, I mean, you said the same thing earlier. It's, this is like a, it's like a gym piece. It's like a, it's a mm. fundamental thing you go back to and you can do yeah. for working out or working on a specific skill. But like you mm. said, the catch 22 is it, you have to, if you have a problem as you progress with your dog, mm. you got to know what that problem is and then yeah. how to go about fixing it. It isn't always, the answer isn't always going to be go to, like you said, the scent wheel or go to the wall. We got to find out why whatever the issue is happening. And sometimes that fix happens where the problem is. Let's say it's a car or a a room or what have you. Then it won't help if you go back to and just confirm the dog that it's only in the scent wheel. Exactly. And like you said, that's the problem. I I mean, you you, you train all day and something is just not just you know, or at least I don't think it's that fun to for other people to watch when the dog running around doing things in, uh, you know, searching for 10 minutes. And even though I actually posted those videos also. So, yeah, but I guess, I mean, I post videos almost every day, but um, I'm not uh, posting everything, obviously. Sure. Yeah. I no, it... I don't think <laughs> that people would like to watch a dog running around for 10 minutes in the woods doing, you know, running out. So, yeah. No, uh, it, it's, it's but, but very... that's why it's, I always try to, to point out what I, just like what we're talking about here, right. I'm normally I try to, uh, to explain that also mm-hmm. when I post uh, videos of, of different things, but some things are just a little bit more <laughs> easy for people to watch. So that's, that's for sure. No. So easy. you, it made me think of another question. So a lot of times, you know, in the detection dog world, when it comes down to the dog's trained final response uh obviously sit is the most common what's your feeling mm. on sit versus that lock up freeze the where the dogs are mm. naturally pointing um you know what do you see in sit and what do you see in freeze yeah or just one thing first about the lineups that i yeah um, uh, wanted to mention yeah, go ahead. i have an example of a uh, problem happening there i was training with this special forces unit and they had dogs that were really really good um the search was really good they were the indication was perfect everything worked really good and we started to use lineups where we use different things shoes chairs you know everything mm-hmm. can be a lot, part of a lineup and that's then it's a really good thing to use lineups because it's it's a good way to present uh, the scent in different contexts and material and you know everything for a dog but they were first training on these Dutch boxes, quite kind of big. Mm-hmm. Uh, wooden, mm-hmm. It was really good. And then we um, uh, trained on other uh, things and worked, worked also really good. 
But then we mixed like shoes, um, chairs, jackets, bags, and nuts box. Yeah. And all of the dog was completely blocked and just had too much expectation of Dutch, Dutch box and didn't search on the other things. Uh-huh. That's how contextual learning also works in a smaller context. Yes, absolutely. So, and the only way to 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 solve it, there are no other ways than bar- through variation. Yep. In training. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the indication. Well, uh, first of all, I think it depends a little bit. Um, I train different. Sometimes in some systems, they have this uh, standard mm-hmm. that it should be a sit and stare, for example. So sometimes it's not no option, and sometimes it's also good with a sit and stare because it's um, uh, for some work it's really important that the dog is still and stay there. Oh yeah, and then for many dogs, it's a little bit easier for for the handler to to communicate that during training if they are sitting. Yeah. Many dogs, when they are standing, after a while they start to move a little bit. Yeah, uh, and that can be a problem sometimes. Mm-hmm. In tracking training, sometimes stand and stare have been a problem in dark, uh, in, in uh, nights uh-huh. when we're yeah, tracking, very true. because the handler weren't able to see if the dog were indicating or uh-huh. if it's just kind of analyzing the track. Yeah. Uh, the good things with the stand and stare is that it's, uh, uh, you know, some sometimes it's not just comfortable for the dog to lie down or sit or or whatever. Um, but um, I've seen some. I think that sit and stare, sit and stare can start with the good things with it, and then the bad things. The good things is that it is a well-defined behavior for the dog. Yep. It makes the indication a little bit more active, an active decision to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been seen it especially in dogs who have this natural tendency to freeze, spaniels, yes. pointers, all yep. that. Yep. That what they do when they get a little bit insecure very often is that they freeze. And then if you're doing blind and double blind, it can be a problem for the handler to sometimes see that it's indicating or it's freezing because yeah. it's easy for the dog to it doesn't cost very much or like to, you said to, they're just investigating it and they're fr- they're frozen up as they smell something for a second yeah. i've learned this myself on yeah. one of my labs i have to let him it when he's locked up he mm. stays locked up for a long time um yeah. but when i was first learning him when he would smell something novel or unique he'd mm. be very very still as he's smelling it and when i was running yeah. blind i would call those thinking initially that, that he was indicating because he was very yeah. still and he was just checking something out, but that's, I learned through yeah. that two things helped me. Well, one thing helped me there was I then knew the duration of his indication was what, what the difference was like, he wasn't yeah. moving. He wasn't leaving. If it, and it had to be more than something like three seconds where when yeah. you're first learning, you're, you're doing it fast. So this is where yeah. the confusion comes in as a handler, when you're uh, not requiring duration for your indication, no matter what it is, if the dog does something quickly and you're always so fast in your yeah. reward, that becomes a problem because like you just said, you know, if they're checking something out, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, and also, um, I, some of these dogs are quite soft actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, uh, I mean, that's what they do. They freeze, become a little passive when they get insecure. And now if you randomly reward that or even just confirm it by moving toward the dog, well, then they, you, you have the perfect recipe for a false alert. Sure. Yeah. So 
when I've had dogs coming here who were trained and were a little bit of these, you know, soft, little stressed uh, spaniels, mm-hmm. especially, mm-hmm. and they had to stand and stare, the, the way to solve the problem with the false alert was to add a sit. Yeah. Uh, because then they had to think a little bit more. And and like I said, it doesn't cost much for them to no. just stand and try. So by sitting, they actually have to make a decision. And then I think it makes it more reliable. Yeah. Uh, the other good thing with a sit and stare is that you automatically get that um, um, distance to the hide mm-hmm. uh, when they mm-hmm. pull the head back. And yeah. it's less uh, common that they will nudge it or, or yeah or, yep, yep, yeah yep. so a stand and stare sometimes is almost like a half trained indication i mm-hmm. think that it is a freeze but it's not the f- complete uh, position you know like sit or lie down mm-hmm. which can be um, put the dog in a little bit too active mode uh, which very often cause licking pushing. yes it's so true yep it yeah. definitely does so, uh, yeah, no, it, it's one of the things. So I, I agree. And I've gone through many of the things that you're bringing up with, with the, the lockup stands kind of freeze mm. alert. The, the flip side to the sitting side of things was a lot of the techniques used here in the United States mm. had a lot of adversives added to the sit, yeah. you know, I've seen yeah. yeah, so a lot of pull-ups, push the butt down, do all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then those adversive measures or the control measure by the handler to get that sit then yeah. cause dogs to go, oh, I should default to sit over anything yeah, else, yeah. which is yeah. what you said I mean, earlier. That's, yeah, and that's not how we train the sit and start. No. I mean, I've seen it also. And, and that's has nothing to do with a trained uh, response. So if you trained it that way, I would probably prefer uh, the stand, which is stand what, stand. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. So that was what you're bringing up is what I went yeah. through as an instructor in the States was the methodology used was dog can run up to the one box. As soon as his nose goes in the box, tell him to sit and you, you pull up on the collar, push down the butt. And when the dog yeah. sits, you'd have the toy launch out or push out or whatever you did. So the dogs, it's, it's almost difficult to, to find a better example of hand influence. Yes. And not only that, then just add back to our context aspect, the yeah. dog just looks at a box as I should run to a box and sit at it. Yeah. Exactly. And eventually yeah. they'll go, from box to box to box, but then mm. the context, the only thing that changes, the dog goes, oh, it's this one dirty box that potentially smells like dog saliva, whatever mm. else yeah. junk is there, the toy that's in there, all these other things that are non-relevant. And then the mm. dog goes, oh, okay, it's this thing that you want me to do this behavior at. But when stressed, because they used mm. some stress to teach the sit at odor, the dog, when stressed, offers this sit behavior, especially when you add the next layer of context, which is handler yeah. doing a yeah. behavior that they go like walking behind the dog. As soon as I walk behind yeah. or dog walks or the handler walks behind the dog, dog goes, oh, yeah, I know what happens next. I'm supposed yeah. to sit. So, yeah. So in comparison versus what you do is you're teaching yeah. a lot of those impulse control games. That's what I like to do. And then yeah. in that impulse control games or those games, as you said, you're doing the development, the yeah, sitting the is part of yes. the, the behavior. It's not the handler pushing the Correct. dog. Correct. I mean, you don't train sit in obedience like that no. anymore. <laughs> but that's what people did many years ago also. But then it's actually the handlers doing the, <laughs> the behavior. Absolutely. Dog. And I think this that's is the... Also- takeaway people have to have is between these two ways of doing it. That's what makes it successful for a sit and not successful for a sit. 
Yeah, and, and, and I mean, um, the thing is that the indication is just like, I mean, the odor should be the cue yes. for that behavior, yes. whatever behavior you, you yep. choose. Uh, so that, and that's the challenge, you know, mm-hmm. to make sure that it is the scent and nothing else yep. that triggers that behavior. Yep. And this leads me into the next thing with the indication and the reason why, and that's something that I've changed also uh, from before is that it feels like uh well it sounds good like to let the dog decide whether he should stand or sit or lie down Mm -hmm. depending on the height Mm -hmm. but uh since the odor is the cue i think it it would be like if i say sit to the dog Mm -hmm. and then i let the dog decide whether he should sit down or lay lie down or uh, or stand Mm -hmm. no one would do that yeah because it would be difficult for the dog to make all those different type of decisions every time he gets the cue. Correct. Yeah. So I think it's easier to have one behavior. Yes. It takes shorter time. So I don't care if the height is high or low or whatever. It's the same response. Yep. Whether it is sit or or stand or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I've seen dogs who who done who did that and then the oh the height is placed in between. So it probably for the dog felt natural to sit or yeah. stand, you know, it, it could be sit, it could be stand. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've seen dogs ending up in a conflict just because they can't decide which one to go with. So they yeah. move on. Yeah. So by just having one response to that cue, I think it's easier. Yeah. But whether it is a sit or, or stand or whatever, the mm-hmm. sit to get a good sit and stare, uh, you need, a, you need drive. Yes. So, uh, because if you have, and that's something that I see very often, that people have dogs, they train the sit and stare without having the strong reinforcer. So the dog, and also they are focusing on the sit. So they forget to look at the dog's nose and eyes. So they focus on the sit and the sit is a kind of bigger Uh behavior for the dog. So it makes it uh, very aware of it. So after a while, the dog sits two meters away from from the height he's backing out yeah so the criteria for a sit and stare that i have is because the goal is that i want a sit and stare but i want still a strong focus yeah. so i want the dog to almost be leaning towards the hide but mm-hmm. at a safe distance so i want the legs to be locked front legs mm-hmm. locked when the dog mm-hmm. finds the hide and that they are just moving the back parts yep. in instead yep so i still have that focus so i yeah. can clearly see where the hide is because like i said many dogs think that sit is important and so then they are sitting and then they lose the focus uh-huh. so but to be able to get that intense sit and stare you need to do the reward development yep. and for many dogs i since it's not the indications or the play development is not enough uh, trained yeah then i can during the first part of the uh, detail search on the brick wall I don't add the sit mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I add the sit and I see that the dog is backing out then I take a step back and only re- reward the reaction yep yeah the emotional response to the odor yeah 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 so so that's the the bad thing with a with the sit and stare um but also what's more important is that if you have different types of body positions and let the dog decide you just have to be aware of the fact, fact that they will sooner or later start to have a favorite. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, uh, 
Yeah, so I, I re- really recommend, and also, it's also based on mistakes that I've done. Same. Uh, that it's better to have one behavior. And what type of behavior you choose, first of all, has to be decided uh, from what the dog is going to work. As I say, what your job's going to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there are body position is something. I mean, if, even if the dog is, because that's another question I often get, but why do you have a sit and stare? What if the hide is placed high up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, the dog doesn't get closer just because he's allowed to stand. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's not mm-hmm. getting closer. And the most important thing is that trainers have to realize that the indication is two parts. Uh, and when you're observing your dog searching, at some point, he decides to stop to search. Mm-hmm. And when he's searching and he, you can see that he's finding something and he's trying to work out the, the odor and you know the source... And then you're observing your dog and you have to remember, okay, that's where he stopped and decided to go into the indication. Mm-hmm. And then you have to put those two together. Yes. And that's uh, really important because both will give you information. Absolutely. That's where he stopped to search. And if you've done the search development, he will work hard for a long time until he pinpoints it. And then he decides to, I don't know, stand or sit or whatever. But if it's high up, for example, then you will see that the dog is standing on the back legs and really, really pointing out. And you as a handler have to observe him and observe when he decides to, you know, stop and go into an indication. And those two are the indication, the indication behavior, but also where the dog stopped to to search. Mm -hmm. Because that's probably where he thinks it is. Yeah, as they work it out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, but I mean, that when we are now focusing a lot on homemade explosives, um, the indication is really important. Yeah, or even the forensic then, aspect of detection. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. blood, like so, we talk, elect- digital things like that. This is yeah, very important aspects. Yeah, and from it's about safety and it's uh-huh. about uh, evidence uh, preservation. Yeah and accuracy and everything and so i mean the 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 indication now is actually more important than it was before because the things that people are looking for now are more uh sensitive and oh yeah and uh, so um it's um but the problem with that is again that many trainers start with indication training too early yep and uh, it's all about we, the indication. Yeah, we always say that you start with indication, but what we mean then is when you start the systematic search. Mm-hmm. When you have starting up the search on, I don't know, cars or whatever, you systemize it. But all the other things that we've been talking about here tonight should have been done before that. That's yes, the most correct. I, I call that step zero stuff. Product. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And before that, no indication should be trained mm-hmm. at all nope. because during that time the dog is searching for the reinforcer yep. and he has to grab it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when he has done that and you can see that this dog clearly has the motivation to search mm-hmm. for a long time mm-hmm. then you put the indication together and then we start with a detailed search yep now the only um, thing that we all say we, we we forgot to talk finish out real quick one was the plus and minus of using food for that reinforcing search. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that the good thing with the, with the, with the puppies at least is that they, 
well, it, it, it's easy to stimulate the, you know, the search yep. Yep. drive. Um, the bad thing can, can be that um, it can, if you have a dog who is very crazy about the food, mm -hmm. it can be for some dogs uh, a problem to, to start up the play development because they it's prefer food. so true. So, yeah. So at least I don't mix. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons in the same session, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I decide when I use food and then I use only that because yep. otherwise I will lower the value of the toy very often. Correct. Um, so, and this is one reason why I try to avoid to let them choose or to change too much. If I have a dog who is not really interested in the food, mm -hmm. the worst thing that can happen is that you constantly try to find something better. Mm -hmm. But instead, I prefer to add other things to the food, like playing, yes, the, yeah. after and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then they can, after a while, they start to eat. So, yeah, yeah. and that's the same thing that can happen if you, because you, when we, when we, when I do all these things that I've described, the most important thing of all the training is to, to create that work ethic yes because you can yes. you can see many dogs who has a lot of drive and everything but then the rewards are handed out almost without any criteria at all they get rewarded for everything and that's a good way to take away the work ethic yeah from the dog. so i want to teach them the basic principles from the very first food exercise that acceleration intensity focus is important you will get the best reward for the best response yeah so and that is how you you have to think when you when you start to implement variable reinforcement schedule in the search later on to get away from the rewards but that's not the same thing as rewarding randomly correct I was just going to, I was going to bring that up is, you know, yeah. yeah. So two things in what you said, uh, I've gone through one, you, you know, I do food with those really young puppies. I'll do mm. the food hunts. Uh, usually, you know, they have to work for their food. So I'll do, yeah. you know, teaching them how to get under something, go over something to eventually get to that, that, uh, amount of food they have there mm. once. And I get away from that after just a few weeks of time, just because just like you said, I have seen dogs when you do that too much they will hunt for food like crazy and the toy part isn't as intense. So mm -hmm. I, I've learned to make sure you balance it back out depending on that dog and, and you have to adjust to that dog in front of you. Some dogs, it's only a few sessions with food games. Other dogs, you can go longer. It just depends. The, yeah. uh, the other aspect that you're bringing up is later on in training by knowing, like obviously I would say my dog loves, let's say the ball and a rope, but yeah. I also know it likes a tug toy. So yeah. at later on, once we're, we're in fully trained mode, I may vary up sometimes giving yeah. them the thing he loves and the yeah. thing he likes. And yeah. that helps can pull out some intensity. And that's how you should use it. Yeah. Uh, not to, I mean, to, to, if he's doing something really good, then he's getting something extra good. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I want. I want my joke around it. Cause I live in Vegas. I want that gambler's mindset. I want that dog yeah. to be like, I never, I know it's going to happen. The best thing yeah. will appear. So yeah. I use that to my advantage. Yeah. 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 And then, then it's good to have a big uh, variety of rewards built up 
yep. that you can use, but that's different from asking the dog, do you want this or do you want this? Yes. You know? Yeah. Oh it's, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Totally different than that for sure. Yeah. They should understand how mm-hmm. to get that best, the best one. Yeah, for sure. Extra hard. Well, I usually keep these podcasts to about an hour and we're almost at an hour and a half. So what I would love to do with you is we'll yeah. do a part two continuing yeah, on where we'll get into things like talking about purity of odor, talking yeah. about working with thresholds, mm-hmm. um, and then talking about some operational aspects in different types of disciplines, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, perfect. And I think that what we have covered now is, you know, the, the foundations and yes. all the way up to, to uh, where we start the detailed search and put it together with the indication. And that would, might be a good uh, start for the next one. Perfect. The systematic search. Yeah. So how do people get a hold of you if they want to send you an email or go to your website? How do they find you? You can find me, uh, just search for my name, Tobias mm-hmm. Gustafsson uh, official. Is that my fa- Facebook page? Okay. Uh, my uh, website isn't really uh, finished yet but it's up but uh, but uh, i don't want it's to in a basic mode yeah 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 it it's, uh, <laughs> but the facebook page facebook page no problem and that yeah. and that will of course I'll, of yeah i'll yeah. put that in the show notes so everybody can find it yeah well i i thank you a lot for taking the time i can't wait for part two and no, it's really fun yeah actually. and i like we talked about i want people to you know understand especially in detection us working together various Mm. people with levels of experience different experiences but working collaborating together actually is what detection and being better at our skill set is all about if we stay divided or it has to be this line in the sand like we are food only or we're toy only Mm. or we're marker only or whatever Mm. all that does is take away the attention from the main thing which is being good at yeah. detection with our dogs. So yeah, exactly. yeah. super glad you got to, to do this and yeah, I w- go ahead. No, me too. <laughs> yeah. So thank you to all the listeners out there. We hope you enjoyed this episode of canines talking sense, and we will be having part two coming up soon. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy.